Man, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to grab one on the way out. I'd love for you to have one. Be our gift to you. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, I just have to get out of here? I have a mild case of claustrophobia. And uh, at our old house, one day we were trying to move our TV from one, uh, one end of the room to the other. And in our basement there, we had a partial basement, and then we had a crawl space. And so I had to go in the crawl space, and it was only about maybe that high, and I had to find where the cable line was, and then go to the other side of the room, drill a hole, and then feed it up to the other side of the room. And so I put on a mask, because it was really dusty down there. I think I put some goggles on, some old clothes, and I'm just you know, going, going at it, trying to find the place where that cable wire was. And I was doing great, and then all of a sudden, something hit me out of nowhere. And it, all of a sudden, this incredible anxiety came over me, and I thought to myself, I just gotta get out of here. I had trouble breathing, and I did whatever I could to make my way to that opening to get out of there as fast as possible. And then after that, I couldn't, go back in there unless I was really close to the exit. Another time I was here at the church and I think I was turning off the elevator and uh, I went, it was downstairs and I was bringing it upstairs and then all of a sudden it just stopped in between the two floors. And I started to freak out. I had been in the elevator a number of times but on that particular occasion when I knew that I couldn't get out, I started to freak out and I thought, I just gotta get out of here. Thankfully, Ron was here and he was able to manually open the door uh, with the key that he had. But I can't, in those moments, you just think to yourself, I just gotta get out of here. Well, if you think to yourself, well, that's only a few minutes. Imagine if you were in an elevator for 41 hours. There's a man named Nicholas uh, White and he was a production manager in New York City and he worked on the 39th floor and it was 11 o'clock on a Friday night and he was still working. And then he took the elevator down to take a smoke break and then he went back up and on his way back up, it stopped in between floors. 
Now, he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have any food. He didn't have any water. He didn't have anything at all. And so he started pressing the alarm button. But there was hardly anybody in the building, so nobody heard him. And so all he had to do was wait and wait and wait. It wasn't until 4 o'clock on Sunday that finally somebody came over the intercom and said, is anybody in there? And he was rescued. But if you don't think that's bad, think about the prospect, the worst possible prospect of being buried alive. Now this happened in the, in the ancient world when there was, they didn't have the medical equipment we, that we have today. And so there was actually inventions that were made to prevent this from happening because it happened with some frequency. And so they had these devices where they could open up the grave from the inside. They had a device where there was an air shaft that came down to the coffin. The one device had a rope that was attached to a bell where the person could ring it if they uh, awoke. There's one person, 1915, 30-year-old, South Carolina woman named Essie Dunbar, and she suffered a fatal case of epilepsy, or so people thought. She was put in the coffin. Uh, her sister was called, who lived in another city, and her sister made her way to uh, that city where she was to see her one last time. And when her sister arrived, they had already buried her. They were just finishing up the burial. And this didn't sit well with her sister. So she said, I, I want to say goodbye to my sister one last time. So they dug up the body and they opened up the coffin. And wouldn't you know it, Essie Dunbar sat up and walked out and lived for 47 more years. When the walls are closing in on us, there's something inside of us that just screams, I got to get out of here. And I think as Christians living in the 21st century in the United States, I think that we have that kind of response when it comes to suffering. Whenever we experience suffering, we think to ourselves, I just got to get out of here. I don't care what's going on around me, I just got to get out of here. We live in a culture where we're addicted to comfort. We have everything in our lives that is designed to make us more comfortable, from microwavable meals to smart thermostats to smart light bulbs. Everything's about making us more comfortable. Uh, Stephanie and I have been working on registry for our baby. Uh, it's coming in November. You know, and the whole baby industry, it's all about making your life a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong with seeking comfort. Of course, we're not going to seek something that's uncomfortable, something that's painful. It's only human nature to seek out the most comfortable option. But the problem comes when comfort becomes our God. When comfort prevents us from doing the things that God calls us to do. When we refuse to share our faith because it might be a little bit uncomfortable. When we refuse to give because it might be uncomfortable when we refuse to answer God's call to share the gospel overseas because it wouldn't be comfortable. That's where the problem comes in. And in our culture, I believe that comfort has become an idol. It has become an addiction. And I think as we look at this passage and look at this, uh, what I've termed an un-American prayer, I think it kind of diagnoses where we are at as a culture and it helps us point into the direction that we need to go. 
In this passage, we see that the disciples experienced their first real persecution. We saw that last week, the disciples, Peter and John, are thrown into prison overnight, and they're told not to preach the gospel at all anymore to anyone. Don't speak of Jesus anymore. And, we see, and it says in the text that they're threatened with many different threats that, of things that would happen to them if they would preach the gospel. And so they go and they tell their friends what has happened, what these religious leaders have told them, that they're not supposed to preach the gospel. And then the response of their friends is to pray. Now, let's say this happened to us. Let's say a friend at another church is thrown into prison. And they came to us and said, well, I just want to let you know we were thrown into prison for, for preaching the gospel. And the North Tonawanda Police Department, they said, if anyone preaches the gospel, we're going to come and get them. We're going to come and throw them in prison. Now, we would probably have a prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, what kind of prayers would we pray? We'd say, God, give us safety. God, protect us. God, prevent this persecution from coming to us. Put a hedge of protection over us. And yet in this passage, in this prayer, we don't really see any of those things. We don't see any direct call for protection. Rather, we see that these disciples pray that in spite of the opposition against them, that they would be faithful to the calling that God has placed on their lives, that they would be bold in their witness for Christ. And we see in this passage uh, three elements of this prayer. We see first the sovereignty of God. We see that they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They cry out to the Lord as the sovereign Lord. This word for sovereign is the Greek word despotes, which is where we get our word despot from. And uh, in, the, in the English, despot kind of has negative associations, but in the Greek language, it doesn't have those associations. And it speaks of one who has absolute control or absolute power or authority. And they refer to this sovereign Lord as the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one that's in charge of the created order. Not only is he the one who's in charge of the created order, but he's also the one who's in charge of history. They cite Psalms 2, 1 to 2, which speaks of, uh, which is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And the disciples say all these things that have happened to Jesus, the rage that was poured out against them, all of these things are in accordance with God's plan, and God is sovereign over the events that are happening. The text says that this took place to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to, to take place. So they acknowledge that God is sovereign, that he's sovereign over the created order, that he's the maker of the heavens and the earth, and also that he's sovereign over history, that everything that has happened up to this point, point is in accordance with his plan. And I think that's a good place for us to start with the sovereignty of God. When we're facing difficulty, whether it's persecution or any other manner of suffering, we start with, at the place of, the, of acknowledging the sovereignty of God. We acknowledge that he's in control. We acknowledge that what's happening in our lives hasn't caught God by surprise. Because when things happen to us that are bad, sometimes it's, we start to freak out. And we almost think that God is caught by surprise, like he has no idea what is happening. And yet God knows he's in control of everything that happens. We need to acknowledge that he has all authority and power and that he can do whatever he wills in our situation. A.W. Tozer says this, anything God has ever done, he can do now. 
Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. So that's a good place to start. That's what we need to acknowledge, his sovereignty, that he's in control of our situation. But that's sometimes easier said than done. Sometimes that's a difficult place to start because sometimes the things in our life are so bad and so difficult that maybe we wonder, God, how could you allow this to happen? Or God, how could there be any purpose in what you're doing here? And in those moments when we question what God is doing, we can look like the disciples did and look to the cross. See, the cross in and of itself is a terrible, terrible thing. One of the most brutal forms of execution ever invented, meant to torture its victims, not just to kill them. And we see the Son of God, the Messiah, crucified on a cross in and of that self. That in and of itself, it's a terrible tragedy. And yet through that tragedy, God brought salvation to the world and painted something beautiful in forming the church and sending His Holy Spirit. And so we look to the cross as evidence of the fact that God can bring beauty out of darkness. John Piper gives an illustration, um, illustra- the most helpful illustration to me to kind of figure out and think about this in, in your mind. He says, think, think about a mosaic. You know, a mosaic, you know, a big picture with little, little squares or little pictures inside of it. If you look at that mosaic, it's a beautiful picture. But if you look at those squares, they may or may not be beautiful. They may not form a coherent uh, whole. And so say there's a square. One square is the crucifixion of Jesus. In and of itself, a terrible thing. One thing is your journey with cancer. One square is your journey with uh, marital distress. One little square is financial difficulty. And we look at these things, and in and of themselves, they're terrible things, but somehow God in his wisdom can take those things and paint something beautiful. But when you're right up close to it, when you're looking right at that one square, all you can see is the darkness when you step back, you can see the beautiful picture God is creating. And for some of us, you know, sometimes we don't see that picture until we get to heaven. And we'll look back and see that even in the bad times, even in the suffering, God was doing something for our good, for His glory. He's painting something beautiful. He can bring light to any darkness. And so they started with an acknowledgement of his sovereignty that he's in control of the heavens and the earth, that all of history flows in accordance with his plan, and they acknowledged that. And that's where we need to start. And of course, we pray that God will change our situation. There's nothing wrong with that. That's something the Bible commands us to do, to cry out to him, bring our request to him. But sometimes God will say no, and it's in those times that we need to acknowledge his sovereignty And then we see the second part of his prayer is that they submit to God. We see submission. Verse 29 says, And now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They said, God, we're facing a threat. We're facing persecution. Help us be faithful in the midst of that persecution. See, sometimes it's easy to pray, God, bring me out of the valley. But it's hard for, to pray, God, bring me through the valley. God, walk with me through the valley. We remember the, the Psalm 23 
The psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What that indicates is that sometimes God intends for us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why, we don't know for sure. But sometimes he'll choose to leave us in the valley, but he doesn't leave us alone. He promises that he'll walk through us every step of the way, through it with us every step of the way. Richard Foster says this, as we're learning to pray, we discover an interesting progression. In the beginning, our will is in struggle with God's will. We beg, we pout, we demand, we expect God to perform like a magician or shower us with blessings like Father Christmas. We major in instant solutions and manipulative, manipulative prayers. In time, however, we begin to enter into a grace-filled releasing of our will and a flowing into the will of the Father. It is the prayer of relinquishment that moves us from struggling to releasing. So we pray for deliverance out of the valley, but when God says no, we submit to what he has for us. And we say, God, help me to be faithful even in the midst of the valley. And so we live by faith, knowing that God is in control, submitting to his plan, even when it takes us places we don't want to go. And in that, we also see that the disciples have hope and optimism that God will work even while they're in the valley. Even while they're facing opposition, God will work. He will perform miracles. People will be saved. His spirit will be poured out. In his book, Up With Authority, Victor Lee Austin uses the analogy of an orchestra to explain why we need human authority. And I think this also applies to why we need God's authority. Orchestras need conductors because musicians don't know how to answer certain questions. Like what music should we play? What should we, what should we practice? How should we interpret this particular passage? Everybody might have an opinion, and those opinions might be reasonable and good, but if everyone has a different opinion, then they're never going to be able to bring something coherent and beautiful together. And so they need a conductor, someone who will tell them what to practice, tell them what songs to play. They'll tell the brass when to play. They'll tell the strings when to play. And when they're listening to the conductor, he sees the whole picture. He knows what he's trying to achieve, even though each individual member might not see it at the moment. They're just doing their part. And I think in the same way, God, the conductor... He sees the whole picture. We don't see the picture. We might have our own ideas and reasons why we think God should do certain things. But we don't know the whole picture. God sees the whole picture. And when we submit to him, he can create something beautiful in our lives. So we see the sovereignty. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They submit to God. And then we see success. We see that the prayers of the disciples are answered. We see that the place where they gathered shook. Now, we don't know for sure what this means, but we know another case when something shook, and that was Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus chapter 19, it says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in, a, in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Moses went up to the mountain, and God met them on the mountain, and the mountain shook. And I think in a similar way here, as God's people come together and God's people submit to his will, 
God is present and the whole place shook. They're filled with the Spirit and they're able to do things they never thought were possible. Remember who these disciples are. Remember what happened before they were, before Jesus rose from the dead. Remember what happened in John chapter 20, verses 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. They were terrified. They were terrified that just like what happened to Jesus, it was going to happen to them. And so they're up in an upper room, locks on the doors, don't tell anybody we're here. Remember Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times, says, "I, I don't even know the man. And yet here they are being bold witnesses for Christ in the face of opposition, in the face of possible imprisonment or even worse, they're saying, God, help us be bold. God, help us proclaim the gospel to everyone despite the consequences. It's an incredible change of their hearts. And the truth is, when we submit to God, God allows us to do things we never thought were possible. He allows us to endure endure things we never thought we could endure. To hope for things we never thought we could hope for. To achieve things we never thought were possible. That's what happens when God's Spirit is inside of us and we submit to Him and His plan. He refines our faith. He forms us more into the image of His Son. You see, faith embraces God's plan even when it takes us to places we don't want to go. Faith embraces God's plan even when it takes us to places we don't want to go. Nobody wants to walk through suffering. Nobody wants to face persecution, but sometimes living in this broken world, that's the path that God has for us. And he'll create something beautiful out of it. It's easy in the midst of difficulty to cry, God, get me out of here. It's harder to cry, God, get me through this. Walter Knight told a story of an old Scottish woman, and she would go all over the Scottish countryside selling thread and buttons and uh, all kinds of upholstery uh, materials. And when she would come to a crossroad, she would have a stick, and she'd throw a stick up in the air, and then however, whichever direction it would land, she would go that direction. One day, someone saw her, and she was throwing up the stick in the air. She picked it up, threw it up, picked it up, threw it up, over and over again. Someone asked her, so why, why do you keep throwing up the stick in the air? And she explained, well, I usually use this to tell me which direction I should go in. And the truth is, I want to go right, but it keeps telling me to go left, and so I keep throwing it up in the air, hoping it will go right. I think the same thing is true in our relationship with God sometimes. We want to go God's way as long as it agrees with our way. And if it doesn't, it's like we're throwing up that stick in the air again and again, saying, God, I I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. It's easier to submit to God and his plan. William Carey is referred to as the father of modern missions. And uh, he lived in the 18th century, and during the time frame when he lived, it wasn't a time when uh, missions were, was very popular. Now, in our day and age, if someone decides they're going to become a missionary, the church kind of supports them financially, prayer with prayer, encouragement. But that day and age, it, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, he faced a lot of opposition when he said he wanted to be a missionary. 
Because the line of thinking went, well, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And if he wants to reach the heathen over in India, he can do it by himself. He doesn't need you. And so they said, you're wasting your life. You shouldn't go and be a missionary. And yet he was faithful to the call of God. And he went to be a missionary in India. He was there for 40 years. Never went home in that 40 years. He was a translator, a proficient translator of the Bible. He translated a number of portions of the Bible into 12 different languages. But after 20 years, he, he encountered an incredible setback. Translating for 20 years, he had a printing press over in India. And one day, a big fire broke out, destroyed all of his equipment. But even worse than that, it destroyed nearly all of his work. There were no backups. There were no copies. Basically, everything he had was in that printing press, and he lost nearly 20 years of work. 20 years of life wasted. How could God allow something like that to happen? And yet William Carey writes this to a friend named Andrew Murray. He says, the ground must be labored, labored over again, but we are not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavored to improve this, our affliction, last Lord's Day from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. He said, I principally dwelt upon two ideas. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce in all God does with us and to us. John chapter 21, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Peter had denied him three times, remember the story of how Jesus meets with him and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, and then Jesus says this to Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. The road's not going to be hard. The road's not to, going to be easy, but you're going to glorify me through your life. Faith embraces God's plan, even when it takes us to places we don't want to go. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you care about us. We thank you that you're sovereign, you're control, in control of the heavens and the earth, in control of history. And there's nothing that you allow to come into our lives that you won't use for our good and for your glory. We know your heart is not for us to experience suffering and persecution, but it's a reality of living in this world, and you use it for your glory. Lord, help us as a people to submit to your plan even when we are going to a place we don't want to go. Lord, help us to submit to you because we know that when we do that, you'll be with us. You'll walk with us through the valley. You'll strengthen us. And you'll allow us to do things that we never thought possible. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.